Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. We're also going to look at the new Will Smith film, Gemini Man. We're going to have a conversation about uh, whether or not movies are too loud based on the comments of one Hugh Grant, the British actor. He had something to say about it, and we've got things to say about it, too. And before we get to all of that, we need to go over the news First story this week, AMC Entertainment introducing an on-demand movie service. AMC is, of course, the theater chain nationwide with 559 locations. And they've announced this week that they're offering an on-demand movie service for rentals. Uh, Andy, what do you know about this? So it's important to know that this is a film rental and purchasing platform, not a streaming service, not to be confused with a streaming service. So this is the other way to make money. It's you either have a streaming service or you're going to license things and uh, sell them slash rent them. Uh, so AMC is, is partnering with a lot of the big players like Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony, Paramount um, to have exclusive rights to to, to rent the films um, if you're not subscribing to something like Disney Plus or any any of the other 20 services uh you will have to buy uh amc has been very aggressive in their you know efforts to get get more viewers you know they they launched the the monthly um subscription the stubs plus whatever it is it's 20 dollars a month that has almost a million members so that's about a third of what uh movie pass did at its peak uh so they're really going after ways to to get viewers in this on-demand rental platform is the next step I think the thing that's most surprising about this is that AMC is looking to offer in-home entertainment, right? Because their whole thing is you go out and you go to the movies. Like, that's their business. That's why they didn't like MoviePass, and they definitely had problems with Netflix. They don't like people staying at home. But it seems like they're aware they're going to have to break into that market somehow. It's surprising to see who's partnering with them on this. Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony, and Paramount. Big names in the movie industry, and all of them are offering AMC deals to have movies from their catalog available in this rental service. AMC has said that they'll be offering movies from anywhere from $3 to $5 to $9 to $20 to buy. So you'll be able to get a, a range of digital films available. I, I, It's easy for us to roll our eyes at this, I think, that, oh my god, okay, they're offering more movies at home, you know, on top of Netflix and everything else. But it is worth mentioning this is not this is not just a streaming per subscription service. This is rentals. This this is stuff you can't normally get on streaming services. And I've definitely rented stuff from online services before. Normally, normally like Voodoo is what I go for, or whatever's baked into my Xbox. Um, so I don't know. It's it's different, I guess. And I'm surprised to see Disney playing along, especially considering the uh, oncoming Disney Plus. Yeah, it's another way to you know, like you said, tap into the at home market. They've like I said, AMC has aggressively gone after viewers to get them in their theaters, and now they're also going after viewers at home. And you know, this is a, pl- a platform that you know you can you can have for free. Like you can have the app, and then you don't have to, you're not paying a monthly service. But then if there's that one film that you really want to see, but you're not subscribed, you you can go get it. Um, so I think I think it's pretty smart. I am surprised to see it. Also, it's important to note this launched today. It's already uh, up and running. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's worth mentioning in here. They said that uh, over 20 million people have downloaded their AMC Stubbs app. They have not, a little over 900,000 actually paying for the service, but there's a free tier of it that I think people use. When you're in that many pockets, it seems easy to promote a service, right? It'll, it'd be real easy to roll in some kind of deal or, oh, if you're a Stubbs member, you get the first 
month three movies free or something like i i don't know more to come on this everybody's getting into streaming services even if it's rentals so i don't know we'll see where it goes uh, the next story uh, about the box office this week joker has gone crazy with 55 million dollars <laughs> according to the hollywood reporter that's a great headline and the adams family animated film has buried gemini man when <laughs> we saw gemini man we didn't see adams family we talked about it before the show uh, arguably, <laughs> like Andy said, arguably Gemini Man is the bigger film. Stars Will Smith. I mean, come on, that's that's something. Uh, wh- what's going on, Andy? Well, the big story here is that you know Joker in its second week has made uh, again a, a ton of money. It was the number one film in the box office, fifty five million. The bigger story is that it's doing well overseas and has actually crossed the five hundred million mark. So this, you know, very art house independent. Uh, comic book film has now made over half a billion dollars in its first two weeks, and it's only going to keep going. I don't think it'll be a billion-dollar movie, but for the size of film it is, it's pretty incredible, and it makes Warner Brothers probably really think what they're going to do with this property moving forward. Not only the size, but the tone. Like, Joker is an incredibly dark film. I was reading in a comment thread today about people who were like, man, I had to go see my therapist after I saw this movie. Like, (laughs) it's so dark. And, like, getting this many eyes on a story like that, I think, is beneficial to film as a whole medium, right? It's different. It's diverse. It's a change. Like, I think that's ultimately positive for the industry. I know there's a lot of people who don't feel like movies this dark are a positive thing, but I'm saying the change is good, right? It's 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 a different tone, and it's something, something different. Obviously, Adam's Family is going to do well. I don't think anybody's super surprised by that. It's October. It's an animated film. What's it's not to love? Family it actually, friendly. It stars a lot of inter- uh, Oscar o- Oscar Isaacs, uh, Charlize Theron, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things is in this show. Uh, Gemini Man, we'll talk about it. We'll get to it. Um, <laughs> but first, we're going to talk about uh, the Breaking Bad movie, El Camino. And before we get to that, we should talk about our last story. Zoe Kravitz has been cast as Catwoman and Matt Reeves' The Batman, alongside Robert Pattinson playing the Dark Knight. Andy, this is an exciting casting. Uh, not your first pick, but what do you think? Um, well, again, it's exciting. I, I love Zoe Kravitz. Uh, she's been in a lot of big movies. She was in Mad Max Fury Road. She was in the uh, uh, Fantastic Beast series, uh, as well as doing some voiceover work in Into the Spider-Verse and the Lego Batman movie, I think. Um so she's a, a fine actress, and I think she's really good. I'm not excited about this character. Like Catwoman was done in The Dark Knight Rises, and it's and she was had a minor role in there. And I don't, it doesn't excite me. I, I really wish they were doing a villain that hadn't been done or that hadn't been done in a really long time. Yeah, it's an interesting choice to put Catwoman in the next film. Before we get to that, real quick, on Zoe Kravitz, uh, there is an interesting kind of full circle effect here with this role because she had originally um, tried to she she had tried out to be Catwoman in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Rises, and missed it to Anne Hathaway because she was too bubbly or something i was reading an article about it yesterday she seemed a little too positive or a little too happy or upbeat for what they were going for they wanted the serious tone since then she's voiced catwoman in uh the lego line of of, that's of right. entertainment <laughs> yeah so now she's finally getting the role uh more interesting developments alongside robert pattinson's batman casting definitely because he's different she's different jeffrey wright as uh, uh do i have that jeffrey wright as commissioner yeah. gordon is different um it's it's an it's an interesting choice. I agree. Catwoman again, 
like Catwoman again. You know, we've yeah, seen exactly. the Catwoman thing done. Like we know Michelle Pfeiffer did it back in the day. And Hathaway did it. Both were fine and different, but it, it is a little weird, especially considering we're coming up on the heels of Birds of Prey, right? Which is supposed to be a female-centric, I think, DC villains yeah, film, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah and, and, and there were supposed to be, there was allegedly, uh, you know, a DC or a Gotham City Sirens movie, which was going to be Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy. I think that may have gone by the wayside at this point, but... Yeah, uh, again, like you said, Catwoman, uh, again, it would just, it would, be, it would have been cool to have a different villain. I would love to see Poison Ivy. You know, you, I'm, I'm really happy that it's, you know, another female lead. I just wish it was a more interesting character. But it does tell us a little bit about the plot that there will be, you know, uh, Batman and Catwoman always have uh, yeah, uh, this weird or this strained romance. So we know that that we can expect that to be in the next film. Yeah, I, I would think that would probably be a central kind of point. Uh, interesting place to introduce the new Batman, I think. I'm interested to see if Jonah Hill lands the villain role he was in talks to, to be doing. Um, overall, for what the cast is worth, I'm intrigued to see this film just based on who's in it. Because I don't know tonally what it's going to be. Um, but we know it's going to be Batman, and that's always exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should move on to our first film of the show. I'm going to be taking the summary for this one. Andy is taking Gemini Man. God love him. Uh, the film is El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. <laughs> So El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, picks up immediately following the events of the AMC series Breaking Bad, uh, of which had five and a half seasons or six, if you count the split season. Uh, El Camino is the story of Jesse Pinkman immediately following his escape uh, as a prisoner in a meth lab, uh, and he is on the run from the cops and trying to get out of town and get his money and just get lost. That's his whole scene. Uh, it is very odd to watch this film so far after uh, Breaking Bad has come and gone. It is also very odd to have seen this in a theater where Andy and I both went and saw it. We didn't watch right. it at home on Netflix. We actually went and saw it in a movie theater. We do a movie podcast, and by God, we're going to stick to it. Um, it was certainly a change. Uh, I surprisingly really enjoyed it, though. I didn't go back and rewatch Breaking Bad to get into it. I didn't I didn't study up and I didn't read articles on the things you need to know before you watch El Camino. I just thought, you know what? If this is supposed to be a fresh take from Vince Gilligan, writer and director of the original series, I want to see what he's coming at us with. I'm going to go in and see this fresh. I was pleasantly surprised. Andy, what did you think of El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie? Um, I really enjoyed it as well. I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan. It's probably my favorite TV series of all time. And it, it has this interesting place in you know American entertainment history in that it started pre-Netflix and got huge post-Netflix. Or part, part of the reason it got such a big following was it was one of the first shows on Netflix that everyone kind of started binging and catching up on. Um, so it, it, it owes a lot to Netflix. And so that's why it's, it's interesting that this had a theatrical release in addition to uh the show but i I really liked it i i thought it was um a really good insight into the character into this tortured past and like at at the end of the show you know he's 
he's been kept prisoner and we get a lot of these flashbacks of to his captivity and torture and it's really horrific and he has significant like PTSD from it. So he's dealing with that as well as just trying to escape, get out of the town, like escape from the cops, escape from uh, other bad guys. Um, in addition to that, we meet uh, kind of a who's who from from the series, and I won't I won't spoil who, but uh, we meet a, a lot of our favorite characters. But they all have uh, meaning and purpose in them showing up. They're not just there so you. Could, it's not the Star Wars thing where you just see them so you could say, "Hey, remember that guy from the from that episode?" Like they they have real purpose within the context uh, of the movie, um, and yeah, and I, I really enjoyed it. So let's start with picking up where we left off, right? That's the best place to start talking about this film. Uh, I do want to talk about the theatrical experience. Let's do that at the end, I think, um, because it's okay. worth mentioning. We should talk about that. But uh, first, picking up where we left off. This, this is just over six years following the season finale of Breaking Bad. Uh, the season finale was September 13th, 2013. We are now in October 2019. So it has been a hot minute. It's a very popular series. Uh, Netflix got the data on it. A lot of people have watched it again and again and again. But for this, you and I went in fresh. You know, I think I think we both said, let's just go in and see where we pick up. I think the charm of Breaking Bad is it ties up its loose ends so well. It did yeah. such a great job of tying up loose ends. That was the brilliance of uh, Walter White's Heisenberg, played by Brian Cranston, the original series. So when we're talking about a direct sequel... I didn't really know where they were going to go next. I mean, Better Call Saul is on AMC, but that's a prequel, so that still has plenty of runway um, to get to the series. Following this, the only real loose end we've got is Jesse Pinkman, who escapes at the end of Breaking Bad to drive off to fame and fortune or wherever he's going. This picks up there, right? This says, okay, what happens to Jesse Pinkman in the El Camino? Where is he going? And it kicks off right away with a flashback. Uh, to something previously in the series. I don't think any of the flashbacks in the movie are actually from the series. I think they were all filmed retroactively. Right. Um, right. Uh, they went back and refilmed everything, and they brought back some actors and some 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 characters from the series that were really charming to see again and kind of revisit, very, very nostalgic. But um, things very quickly moved to Jesse in this El Camino, driving away from the chaos and the madness uh, left in his wake. And then he immediately sees the cops and realizes <laughs> I'm I'm one of the only survivors of what happened there and they're going to want to know what's going on and I look like a suspect. I need to get out of here. Um, not to mention his incredible criminal record uh, from the, you know, the series. So obviously he's a wanted man. Uh, he realizes he needs to get out of town. He goes and meets up with a couple of his buddies uh, from the series, um, Skinny Pete and Badger, who are both... Phenomenally charming, and that's where you start to really fall into the Breaking Bad pattern we're familiar of, right? A little bit of comedy, and it's in its kind of serious tone and nature, but still very dramatic, and and uh, a, a good dose of action on top of all of that. Right. Um, it really holds true to those tenements. It does a fantastic job of feeling like this is a continuation of what we've seen before. It really gets you right back into that universe in a really charming way, and... At some point, like, I kind of forgot I was sitting in a movie theater, you know? It felt like I was just watching the show again. Or watching it at a watch party with friends like we used to do when the show was on. Really charming. What would you think? Yes, the... Um I felt like it really got the tone of the show, like you were saying. Um, you know, Jesse, he has to escape, and he has to very much rely on his his wits uh, to get out of a number of situations. And that's what the show was really brilliant about. It wasn't about 
people being superhuman or, you know, an action hero. It was them outsmarting uh, their opponents through different ways. With uh, Walter White, it, a lot of times it involved science. With with Jesse, a lot of times it's it's different ways. But he gets into a number of situations that are really tense, and he has to kind of weasel his way out of, out of them. Yeah, and, and, and things kind of only keep going from there, right? Like, Jesse doesn't exactly have an easy time throughout this film. It's pretty much a struggle the whole way throughout because unlike the end of Breaking Bad, when it seemed like, hey, he's got all these resources and all this money he made from cooking meth for five seasons, it turns out he doesn't have access to any of that and he Mm -hmm. has nothing and he has to figure out a way to kind of undo some of the decisions he's made and ultimately get get out of Dodge or or get caught and I assume go to prison for life or worse death penalty based on uh, things he would be framed for. Um, it's a very kind of hopeless endeavor. In fact, it, it, the, the movie makes it very clear from the very beginning, Jesse cannot undo what he's done. He, he will not get a second chance at making things right. It's just a, a, an escaping would, would mean... I don't fresh know, tr- start. Yeah, trying to lock away the things that he's done. Um, and and that, that, that kind of weighs on our character throughout the whole film. He certainly has PTSD, like you said, uh, that's very jarring. Uh, it's very loud in certain scenes. We'll talk about that in our next segment. But um, I, ultimately, I, I I didn't mind the flashbacks. I didn't mind the kicks back to the original show. And I didn't mind kind of the, the extra stuff they had to stick in to provide enough plot for what was happening here. Somehow, that stuff didn't feel like excuses. It felt like a continuation of narrative. Like, I, I really didn't mind it. It was like a, It was like an epilogue of sorts. Right. Um, yeah, it was It was really curious the way, again, they drop you right in the show. And that, that's another thing. This is definitely not for people who are, who are not very familiar with the show. They do very little to catch you up. They don't do, you know, characters saying, hey, remember that time you did that thing and that's why you're in this situation? Like, they don't do any of that. You're expected to be familiar with the show and everything that happened and where the characters are. And you're just dropped right into it. And, and it really works for that reason. And I don't think I would I would... You know, that's not a flaw of the film at all. I would be really annoyed if they did a whole bunch of catching you up. Yeah, and and <laughs> it's worth mentioning, I think that's why they, they use the, the moniker of Breaking Bad movie in the title of this film. Like, they want you to know out front, listen... If you haven't seen Breaking Bad, you're going to be a little confused. Like you have to, you know, I'm sure I'm sure marketing somewhere wanted them to just call it El Camino and leave it, you know. And and I think Vince Gilligan, the, the writer and kind of creator of the series, really wanted everybody to know you, you need to have seen the show before this. And for being a TV film, which is something we talked about last week. I, I like honestly, I think I wanted to dislike it a little more than I did because it's so non-traditional. Um, it feels so different. You have to have this whole body of knowledge before you go in. But for having that knowledge, I really liked it. <laughs> I, I can't say how it would have been had I not seen Breaking Bad, but for going in with what I knew and then finding out more about the care about what I don't like, it was really charming. It was really engaging. I, I, I was I was tuned to the screen for two whole hours. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, anytime we have a sequel, especially that much after the a show or a film has ended, it's very difficult to make sure that you're kind of staying in the world, recapturing the magic. And this film does an excellent job of putting this right back there. I mean, Aaron Paul hasn't played this character in six years. It didn't seem like a day had gone by. And, you know, the other characters that we meet, it's 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 like it's the, the next day, which is what you're. it's meant to feel like. And you can see the passion in the performances, I think, not only in Aaron Paul, who does a great job of reprising his role as Jesse Pinkman, uh, probably my favorite. 
I, I know he's typecast as Jesse Pinkman, but like real talk, it's the best role I've seen him in since Jesse Pinkman. Uh, it, it's the guy who plays Skinny Pete and Badger are back. A lot of the flashback scenes are back. Uh, it brings brings back characters we've kind of seen before. You can see in all of their performances like how naturally they slide back into those roles. It's fantastic. It, it like in some scenes it looks like you're in a time machine, like going back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a couple characters who put on a little weight. Which does kind of hurt it, at least for me. I'm, sh- I'm <laughs> yeah. sure most people didn't notice, but I'm going to be honest. Um, Jesse Pinkman, in particular, for being a man who just escaped like prison in a meth lab in the desert, like he should have looked like 40 pounds lighter. The dude should have looked emaciated. Yeah, like, he should look like Christian Bale in the Machinist, and he doesn't. He, he actually looks bigger than he did at the end of the series, and I, you know, <laughs> it's whatever. Like it's not. It's not that important, and and the performance shines through regardless. That's not. That's not exactly the problem. But Vince Gilligan, the the, the creator and writer and who directed this. There's a fantastic job of kind of reigniting that fire under the world that we know. And his direction is so solid. Oh, my God. I couldn't stop talking about it when the movie was over. Like, I loved the direction in this film. It feels so tight. It feels like every shot is useful. It doesn't feel like any time is wasted. Um, it's so well told for a two-hour story. Uh, he's he's doing really good work. I can't wait to see what he does next. I hope he does more more features. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, you know, this is called a Breaking Bad movie. And then I'm sure we might get a couple more. You know, the, the fa- I haven't finished Better Call Saul yet. But again, that show takes place before this, this the Breaking Bad series. So, and I believe his kind of fate was left open ended as well. Now, something I think is a little odd for this review is you and I haven't done a whole lot of talking about the plot. Like I, other than a few characters and just, hey, here's kind of the, the main line. We haven't really said what happens in the film. And I think that's important. Um, despite having to know five seasons of what's going on before you go see this movie, um, if you've heard, if you've watched Breaking Bad and you're listening to this review and you don't know what it's about and you're wondering, that's part of the fun. Like the less you know about what happens in this film, the better, really, um, because it really is a bit of a roller coaster. You kind of get on and you're on it for the whole two hours, and you get off and you're 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 back you're back at home doing your thing, and Breaking Bad's still over. Um, but man, for those two hours, it's such a ride. It's so engaging, and it's really broken up into bits that almost feel like they would be episodes, you know, little staples, like little flashback scenes and kind of rhythmic editing and the things that I know from Breaking Bad that feel so familiar. Yeah, absolutely. Let's um, let's talk about the theatrical experience. We should, yeah. So we went and saw... Well, you go ahead. I've been talking a mile a minute, please. <laughs> so we went to our favorite historical theater in town, the Texas Theater in Oak mm. Cliff. Um. Which we we love going to. It's an old. I mean, it's from like the twenties or so. It's been uh, you know renovated several times. And anyways, so they they were showing uh, the this this film. Um, it didn't have a huge audience. It was the the theater was not not particularly packed like it is sometimes. But it's a great theater. It has good sound, good screen, um, and it it makes it feel every movie we see there feels a little bit uh, more special. And I really enjoyed getting to see this on the big screen with big sound. You know, it makes all the action and all the tense situations just that much more effective. Yeah, I I agree. Um, this is a very I feel theatrical take on the Breaking Bad formula. The, the like, and when you go see it in a theater, the brights are brighter and the darks are darker. And when it comes to Breaking Bad, a show about hills and valleys, that's important. Visually, this this is a really fun movie to watch. There's a lot of really, really engaging shots that are really thoughtful and creative. Things that were in Breaking Bad, but it's been six years, we don't remember. There's a great 
it's a great opening shot. It's one of the first shots in the film, so I feel okay about spoiling it. Uh, when in a flashback scene, Jesse is talking to a character who's giving him some advice, somebody who was in the show who is not presently in El Camino. And uh, during this kind of talk they're having where they're talking about life and moving on, it cuts to a shot hanging over a river and you see this water going across the frame. Uh, It's very visual. It's life going on. Life is like a river. You know, there's really something to that thematically. And if you're watching it at home, that's the kind of stuff you miss because you're just sitting at home, right? Watching your thing. There's something about going out and sitting down and devoting yourself to the time and putting your phone away and locking out the rest of the world and watching in a theater that is just different and for El Camino I can't recommend it enough I know it's 10 bucks on top of whatever your Netflix subscription already is but man if you can swing it if possible you should go see this in a theater I think well and and it definitely makes a case for going you know to see other Netflix theatrical releases like uh the Irishman I'm definitely now I definitely want to see it in a theater and I wish I had seen Roma in a theater uh last year would have been a completely different uh experience yeah, you, we, we watching the trailers in front of this. They ran a trailer for The Irishman, and you, you leaned over after it was over. You said, that's weird to see the Netflix logo up there. But yeah, by the time this movie was over, I can't wait to go see The Irishman in the theater. Like, that's all, that's the only place I want to see it. And at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm second-guessing every Netflix film I've ever seen. I'm like, man, maybe <laughs> I should have watched them in a the theater. Maybe I would have felt differently. You know, maybe it would have made a difference. Probably not, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, music for this film was... You know, Breaking Batty kind of music. Uh, there's a few licensed oldies tracks in here that I've never heard of, and probably you haven't either. That really fit in the same way they used to do with, you know, Breaking Bad. I think it's a Vince Gilligan choice. Any thoughts on that, Andy? Uh, the music wasn't particularly memorable to me. Mm-mm. No, nothing outstanding. Like I said, it's it, if you're into oldies, it might be worth going to look at the Spotify playlist. Otherwise, you could probably don't have to think about it a whole lot. Ultimately. The runtime felt okay. I didn't think it was too long or too short. Any any final thoughts, Andy, before we move on? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie? Uh, yes, with a number of, of caveats. It's definitely a, sh- a m- movie for the fans of the show. You have to have seen the show. You have to be really pretty familiar with all of it to to really appreciate it. That's some people will say that's probably that's a negative thing, but I mean you don't have to watch it. It's on it's on Netflix. Um, so that's the the biggest caveat is that it, it's for the fans of the show. So you will need to be familiar. Other than that, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, it was good storytelling. It was true to the show, true to the characters. Um, it's pretty unpredictable. And a lot of times I thought it was going to go one way and it went different ways. So it, it keeps it fresh. Um, and it, it's good to get back into this this world one last time. I agree. Uh, I think I agree with the caveats as well. I really enjoyed this film. I would recommend it in a theater if possible, at home if not. You do need you do need to have seen pretty much all of Breaking Bad to get what's going on here. You do not have to have rewatched Bad in the last six years. You do not need to read an article about what you need to remember and who's it. Don't do any of that. Just if you watched Breaking Bad six years ago or otherwise, go ahead and watch this movie. Like I, I think it does a fine job of kind of dropping you back in the world. It doesn't. It doesn't stand alone. If it, if it wasn't a Breaking Bad film, I'm not sure it would work uh, structurally. But with what we already know, it is a fantastic experience. A great dip back into the world. A glowing review for a television film, Andy. Not something I think I'd ever give, but here I am. <laughs> no, here we um, are. Man, we, we live in strange times. Imagine if we had watched Downton Abbey. Imagine the men we'd be. <laughs> uh, so we should talk about this uh, comment made by British actor Hugh Grant. We found this... 
yesterday, earlier today, and and at first I just thought, okay, that might make news, and Andy said, no, this might be the cinema, and we kind of talked about it, and I think I think he's right. There's, there's something here. <laughs> so, Andy, you want to take it away? Yeah, so uh, recently Hugh Grant went to go see the new Joker film and uh, wasn't real happy with uh, some of the volume or audio issues and tweeted out saying, uh, the joke was on us, am I older? Is the cinema much too loud? Um, so he was complaining uh, about the, uh, you know, the volume in the theater. And this is kind of, uh, broken open into a larger conversation of, is the cinema getting too loud? Cause apparently they, you know, surveyed some other people, some other producers who said, yes, it, it actually is. It's slowly getting louder and louder. Uh, so that's what this story is. Zach, what do, what do you think? Well, first things first, I love that in response to Hugh Grant's tweet, he got multiple <laughs> responses from cinema complexes. Uh, you know, play companies that run movie theaters that were, where did you see it? At our theaters, we check the sound all the time. Everybody tries to make like a PR correction when, yeah. when a star or somebody with a, with a half decent following tweets about something they don't like. So I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I don't think Hugh Grant's too old. I really don't. Uh, both, <laughs> both, both in roles and it, for this tweet. Uh, Hugh Grant's okay by me. But um, it's a question worth asking. Is sound an issue when it comes to film? Uh, I was reading a little bit more into this. Uh, <laughs> according to, um, who is it? Dolby, uh, the leading sound system, right? The, 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 the weird Dolby trailer you see in front of every movie you see at the theater now. Um, they say usually the standard setting uh, for you to enjoy a movie for two to three hours is about 85 decibels. They said anything louder than that, that might actually mess with your hearing. That's probably bad, but that's usually where we lock all of our stuff. According to some people, some medical experts say things should be closer at 80 decibels. So when the science comes down to it, supposedly you're safe either way, I guess. Uh, I've definitely seen films in loud theaters that I didn't enjoy. I've seen films in loud theaters that I did. We were talking about it before the show. You had a fine example, right? Yeah, so the probably the loudest movie I ever saw was uh, 2014's Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan space epic. Um, because, And I saw it in IMAX, uh, and I saw it uh, with a friend. And that movie was so loud. I, it shook me. It was shaking the seats, and people were visibly covering their ears. But that's the whole point of that food. You, like he wants you to feel like you are in the space shuttle, like you are blasting off in into space. And and like I said, a lot of people complained about. It. A lot of people said it was too loud. I loved it. I, I love what he's and I love what he's trying to do as an as an auteur. He's trying to make the experience that much more real for you. And there are similar scenes in Dunkirk where the opening scene, which you haven't seen yet, but uh, you know, these (laughs) soldiers are running through, through this town, through Normandy. And then all of a sudden gunfire goes off and the gunfire is so loud. It it sounds like there's a, there's a rifle right over your shoulder. And again, that's, that's the point. Um, And then I've had experiences the opposite way. I've had experiences where the sound wasn't loud enough and I couldn't get into the film. Uh, When I first saw baby driver, I saw it in uh, one one of these like, you know, food provided or food serving theaters and they had the volume low so you could hear the servers and then I couldn't really, and that film absolutely depends on on great sound. So for me, I definitely like a, a loud film. I like to be swallowed and enveloped by the score. But I know that's not for everyone. Yeah, I've, you know, I think I've got a similar story, and I think I think most kind of regular film goers do, right? Like they've got stories like this. I remember back when I was working at the movies in high school, and Dark Knight came out, right? The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan. People came out of that movie. I swear to God, Andy, every single show and complained about the volume. And it was one of two things: it's either too loud or it's too quiet. 
And then every mm-hmm. once in a while you get somebody who's like, okay, I see what's going on here. Something's wrong with the mix. Like the explosions are too loud, but the dialogue's too quiet. So Christopher Nolan is his own beast. And part of this is left up to directors. It's not just up to like sound engineers or whoever thinks that should be as loud as it is. Directors have a say in this stuff. Many of them are auteurs. Many of them want things to be a certain volume. And that's just the way it is. At the same time, I saw Blade Runner 2049 at one of those like, Dolby 3D experience cinemas, whatever. Andy, it was a life-changing event. Oh my Absolutely, God. Yeah. My, my seat shook. Yeah. When the, when the ship would take off, I was like, this is amazing. So maybe I'm young. Maybe Hugh Grant's old, right? Maybe, maybe <laughs> there's just a split here, but for what it's worth, there's a reason people are talking about this. There's a reason people are talking about noise being a noticeable thing in film. And I think ultimately if it's distracting, it's probably done wrong, right? You would agree to that? Yeah, but yeah, probably. And like I said, I like a loud film and I do feel that films have gotten a little bit louder overall. They want to totally immerse or maybe they want just want you to shut up. But I, I can definitely notice a difference. For me, I don't mind. But, uh, you know, some people, like I said, they, they definitely might. And that's and that's completely fine. Dolby had a lot to say about this because, again, they were kind of the big name in cinema audio, right? Um, they they had a lot to say about this tweet, actually. They, they, they voiced a lot of concern over multiple articles, things people said. I can't blame them. I, I think it's worth mentioning, I think, the big reason Dolby is saying things one is not only because Dolby is responsible for a lot of sound, a lot of sound in big movie theaters, but two, because the Dolby experience is a marketable upcharge of a experience, right? Like you can go to Cinemark and you can get a normal lame 2d ticket at the movies, or you can get a sick Dolby cinema, 3d 40 seat shaking experience. And one is going to be significantly louder than the other, but it's also going to cost more. And I think that's important. Audio is a way you can market a film and make a little bit more money. It's not 3D. It doesn't give people a headache and it's only two or three hours. They probably won't even notice. Nobody's going to get up and complain because the audio, usually. Mm -hmm. But things like 3D and high frame rate, that can mess with people. It's visual. It it, kind of hurts the experience. But audio is a way you can just make a little bit more off the top, right, without having to be too distracting. I do think you can go too far. I think that's kind of important. Yeah. So, I don't know. Are, are movies too loud? Are movies too quiet? <laughs> I would say no, but I, I like a loud movie. Yeah. I, I, I would say no as well, again, as long as we're kind of within that 85 decibel range. I, I do worry it'll probably go too far at some point. Why wouldn't it, right? Someday we'll be watching movies in 90. I'll need to because I'll be deaf. I'm sure you will too by then. So it, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, bummer Hugh Grant didn't like the sound. I hope he enjoyed Joker anyway. And for what it's worth, Joker has a great soundtrack. So hey. absolutely. Yeah, let's all that that's that's the bottom line here. <laughs> so finally we should get to our last film of the episode. Andy has graciously agreed to take the reins on this one. Andy, please take it away. Gemini Man. Alright, so this is for myself like 30 years in the future. You should come back to Philly a lot, you know, visit people. But also you should do a movie like called Gemini Man. And you should like release the trailer so people can see it. So that's my advice for the future me so this is the latest action uh film by visionary director ang lee who has previously done uh life of pi what was his big he's done something more recent uh billy Uh, billy flynn's long long walk to freedom billy Billy lynn's long halftime walk is the name of that movie yeah sorry there's i butchered that um and and ang lee has uh, routinely really kind of pioneered new 
kind of visual um, technology. Uh, in Billy Flynn, he uh, introduced this high frame rate thing, which kind of makes it look like you're there, kind of a behind the scenes, like almost a little bit too real. And I think he's used some of that uh, for this film as well. Anyways, <laughs> the story is we meet um, Will Smith, who plays Henry Brogan, who's a, a mercenary slash spy slash, you know, CIA assassin, whatever. And he's the best of the best. He can make impossible shots. He has, you know, 75 confirmed kills. And it's time for retirement. And <laughs> he's got one last job, which he does. And then before hanging it all up. Um, but of course, the powers that be don't want uh, tools such as him retiring. Uh, so a, a hit squad is sent out to uh, take him out. They fail. And so they send out the, the most elite secret weapon they have, which is, as we learn from the trailer, a clone, a younger clone of Will Smith, who's got all his skills without any of his like weaknesses. That's, um, right. that's the setup for our film. And we also have uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who plays another CIA agent, um, who's the kind of the Will Smith sidekick, and she gets a lot of action scenes herself. She gets to punch and kick and, and shoot guns. And Clive Owen is our uh, kind of nameless uh, bad guy. So... That's the setup. Zach, what'd you think? You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I think like everybody, I was a little skeptical, right? Uh, not so much of Will Smith, but just of the film, because I haven't seen a lot about it. I, I, don't, I don't watch traditional television, so maybe there's been a bunch of film ads over there, and I, I've just been too busy on streaming services that I've missed ads, but I just have not seen any kind of marketing budget for Gemini Man. This is a Will Smith picture, all right? This guy was huge in 2007. Like, why aren't, why aren't I seeing more about this? And that's usually a concern, right? Like, I, I didn't see any award buzz. I did accidentally see the Rotten Tomato score before I went and saw it. That was unintentional, but it happened. But for what it's worth, I kind of liked it. It's not It's not great. It's certainly not great. It's probably not <laughs> even good. But, like, like, honestly, for being skeptical and going into this film, for thinking, okay, this is going to be kind of a hokey action film it did a great job of being a hokey action film that that's how i felt about gemini man what'd you think yeah uh, similarly it it feels like a a 90s action movie you know kind of this ridiculous sci-fi plot reminded me a lot of something like face off or the rock um but you know really over the top action lots of uh, fight scenes lots of explosions lots of shooting a kind a kind of weird plot that doesn't totally make sense but the actions the stuff that's good is very good and the stuff that's bad is not so great this i almost feel like these two films should have been switched like gemini man should have come out on netflix and you know it was fine for uh uh, el camino to come out in in theater so there were things that worked there was a lot that that didn't but overall i had fun i had a good time I, i too did see the uh um rotten tomato score i feel like it's a little bit overly harsh because um, like I said there are a lot of good things from it even if the film doesn't the plot doesn't work overall so I do want to talk about the production behind this film I don't want to talk about some of the people that made it and I want to talk about the frame rate because I didn't I, there's a lot I didn't know about this until after I saw the film and started seeing reviews online so I guess that's my bad not doing the research but let's talk about that at the end for now let's talk about the cast the plot the film right uh, where, where do you want to get started uh, let's start with plot so we get, you know, this kind of whole paint-by-number spy game, basically the plot of every Mission Impossible film ever where it's like, oh, no, you've been disavowed and you, your government's coming after you. You have to go rogue. That's 
you know, it's so it's kind of a paint by number spy flick. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is also along for the ride and, you know, they have to use their, their wits and all this, you know, they don't have access to their, their tools and their, you know, they've been disavowed. They're people without a country. So all that is, is really cliche. And then also comes this strange element of Will Smith fighting his younger self. And that this is where they try to show off their de-aging technology, which sometimes is pretty convincing. And sometimes just looks like weird animation. Um, so that, that part is okay. To me, this is actually the weakest part of, of the film. Like the, the whole sci-fi thing about cloning is that's obviously a huge deal. And it's not really looked into that much. It turns into this whole like father son thing between Clive Owen and young Will Smith that, that kind of doesn't <laughs> work. Um, but it being a, a paint by number spy thriller is, is one of the weaker points, but that's not really why we're here. We're here to see action. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's worth kind of mentioning here. It, it is exactly what it says on the tin, right? It's not particularly deep. There's not a whole lot of depth here. The characters are a little bland. They're not very deep. The story's pretty bland. But, like, it's also not overly complex, and it doesn't try to be something it isn't. It's not It's not trying to be Avatar, right, where you have these astronauts going to a, a faraway planet where they can't breathe oxygen, but there's aliens. It's not... It's not that. It's set in, like, modern times. It's a dude who has got a clone running around and has to deal with him. Very simple. And I don't mind that in an action film. I really don't. Like, I, I thought that was okay. I, I it, The performances, I think, stood out for what it's worth. But the, the action in its best moments is all right. It's not brilliant, but it's, you know, it's like I said, pretty good. I don't know. It's a movie 20 years past its prime. Like you put this out in, in the nineties in summer of 98 and you're going to have a, you would have had a huge hit. Um, the, uh, let's talk about the action. The action scenes are re- really over the top. We get these, these fight scenes. And, and one of the excitements of this, you know, old self versus younger self is again, they're both highly skilled in, in weapons and hand to hand combat, but you have the younger kind of somewhat enhanced Will Smith, uh, younger Will Smith who can, you know, he's, he's kind of like master of everything. He can do parkour. He can run fast. He can drive any vehicle. He can shoot on the run. He's kind of, he's kind of a super soldier. Um, so some of that, we get these incredible action sequences like on motorcycles and running through the cities of, uh, I think we're in Budapest and also in, in Colombia. Um, that stuff works pretty well. Some of the action stuff looks weird because, again, I, I don't know if it's a high frame rate things or just because he's doing impossible things, but he looked like a video game person. It looked like video game footage a lot of times. Right. I Okay. I think that's a combination of things. One, a lot of CGI, and two, some high frame rate. Now, it's worth mentioning Ang Lee is also directed on top of Life of Pi, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which definitely had some like people on strings and some kind of unnatural movements, so the guy's no, 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 no stranger to that, and I think he's willing to sacrifice visual fidelity to make a stunt happen, right? If you're going to have Will Smith flip over a car while he's trying to get away from Will Smith. Like it's going to, it's going to happen one way or another, even if it looks goofy, but also the high frame rate is a thing. And we'll talk about that towards the end. Cause I think I, I think I know a little bit more about that, but you're right. The, the, the action in, in its best moments holds up and it's worst moments is kind of mediocre. Uh, the, the CGI definitely hurts and we should talk more about young Will Smith and kind of how that works. Um, they do look a little bit like video game characters. And from what I've heard, that does not sound and that does not look any better in higher frame rates. We saw it in a standard 24 2D, I think. That's what yeah. you saw, right? Yeah, me too. Um, that didn't look any better. 
at like high frame rates. In fact, arguably, I think I heard it might look best in the way we saw it. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I like I enjoy the cat and mouse hunt of uh, the two best, you know, killers in the world chasing each other. And also they're like the same person. So that was kind of neat. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah. There's an interesting like question of morality there of, of hurting yourself or whatever. Like it's, it's complicated, but enjoyable. Yeah, you know that that's again one of the kind of gimmicks of of the setup of the premise is that uh, Will Smith knows everything about Will Smith, so he's like, I know, I, I know it, he has these sequences where he's like, I know you're feeling this right now. I know under pressure you do this. When you're confident, you do this. So it's like, even though you're my younger version, like I still know you, and you know, so that that whole thing is 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 really uh, interesting. So. One thing I read is that the with the de-aging or high frame rate, they had to actually make CGI his entire character. It, could, it wasn't just his face. So oh, really? Th- yes. So I think a lot of times when things don't look great, it's because, again, they had to CGI the, the entire thing, the entire person. Yeah, which is a challenge, I mean, for any director. You have to really visualize something that isn't there. And specifically performances that aren't there. And it's going to make it real tough to capture any kind of like really meaningful scenes when you just don't have one of your characters. I I, I mean, I assume in some places they had to have used a stand-in. Surely they used a stand-in. Sure, especially sure. For some, especially for some like the hand-to-hand combat action stuff. Like Will Smith has to be hitting something. Um, there's <laughs> weight there. But um, I, I think for a few of these, they probably had Will Smith stand in and voice lines, uh, which, yeah, let's, let's stick into to Junior, the character. Um, he was okay, right? He's not outstanding. The voice didn't really work for me. I couldn't tell if they pitched him up or they just had Will Smith trying to speak in a higher pitch to sound a little younger and not as, like, older and gruff. Yeah. Um, but that, that really kind of threw me off. I think the thing that was most distracting about it was the fact that we know what young Will Smith looks like and we've seen him on screen a lot and we know this isn't him and it's hard to suspend your disbelief, but in in its in its finer moments, I, I kind of fell for it. I was like, yeah, sure, you know, I, I don't think I ever believed he was a different character, but I could believe in the world they were interacting with somebody there, you know, like it's, he's not a ghost, so... What do you think? I, I, you know what I would have liked uh, to see if they would have just gotten another actor completely. I'm reminded of the film Looper, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays the younger version of Bruce Willis. In and they they're obviously two different people, but you know they did some prosthetics and some makeup to to make Joseph Gordon-Levitt look like a young version of, of Bruce Willis. And I would have liked to have seen that. Like get someone like Michael B. Jordan or. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Daniel Kaluuya, but someone, right, yeah. <laughs> someone to play him as a younger and and you know get into that character like be young Will Smith, walk like him, talk like him, you know, get the same haircut, do you know do some facial prosthetics or maybe a little bit of facial CGI. But I th- I think it would would have worked much better to just have an a young actor imitate young Will Smith. I think it would have made for a much better movie. I'm glad it wasn't Jaden Smith. Let me clarify. Because <laughs> yeah. that would have been easy. And I'm sure somebody talked about it at some point. I'm glad that just didn't happen. And and like I... <laughs> would have rather you know, seen so, Willow Smith. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody's got to move the, the, the... Somebody's got to move the goalpost on like facial technology, CGI, whatever. And and like for what it's... Again, in its finer moments, it, it works in this film. Like he definitely... I mean, they, you're not... You don't see wrinkles or anything. Like he does appear to be a young man. But it just looks a little cartoony right that uncanny yeah. valley isn't yep. quite 
we haven't crossed that yet. <laughs> like it's it's it, not quite there. It looks better in, at nighttime as well. And most of the scenes I feel are at night because the stuff that's during the day, like towards the end of the film, there's some very bright like daylight scenes and the the de-aging stuff just does not work as well. Right. Oh yeah. They, they totally Colonel Kurtz them. Like it's any, <laughs> almost any scene with the young Will Smith is like half shrouded in darkness. Yeah, and you get can't Kurtz. really see him. Yeah. Right. Which is apocalypse now. Um, we should talk about the other people in this film. Uh, we should sure, talk sure. about Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I always enjoy and I wish got more work. And, and watching her in this movie, I'm like, okay, I guess I get kind of why you don't get a whole lot of work, but I think she's fine. I love Clive Owen. Honestly, watching this movie, at some point, I just thought to myself, you know, I kind of wish this movie was just Clive Owen fighting a younger Clive Owen. Because <laughs> that would have been man, more, young, more dude, interesting. Yeah. Oh, young, oh, young Clive Owen, my God. Uh, Benedict Wong is in this film. Uh, the guy who plays Alfred Pennyworth in Joker is in this movie. He's only in one scene in Joker, but he's in this movie for like two scenes. I was like, ah, small world. Like, what are the odds that guy's got two movies coming out back to back? So right. that was kind of neat. And I think those are the really... The only outstanding people. Anybody stand out there? Um, yeah, I, I thought Mary Elizabeth Winstead did great as, as an action role. She she gets to do some hand to hand combat scenes, which you know obviously took take a lot of court, uh, practice and choreography, uh, as well as there's a lot of gunplay. And that you know after some after the John Wick films have come out, everyone's gunplay has to look more and more real. And I felt they they did a good job of you know the way they handle the weapons look looks really authentic and convincing. So, you know, I, I thought she did a great job as an acting star. Unfortunately, her role isn't really more, much more than, you know, female sidekick. Uh, Love interest. Yeah. Who is 20 years younger than our male protagonist. Of course. That's not, that's not distracting at all. Again, the, again, these are all common 90s tropes that are somehow creeping back. Right. Back. Well, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Benedict Wong played Benedict Wong. You know, charming uh, sidekick, I guess. I, I <laughs> is it wrong of me to think I've never, I've never seen an outstanding performance from Benedict Wong? Like, never once have I seen a Benedict Anni- Benedict Wong in a film and thought, my God, this man, like, Anni- annihilation. I mean, he's yeah, fine. Okay. He's not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Doctor Strange. You know. Yeah. Um, he's there. Really he's the- funny. He's entertaining. Yeah, and that's how I felt about Clive Owen in this film. He totally checks the box of like chewing. cheesy villain. Yeah, chewing the scenery. That's right. That's right. The one, the one person, the one performance that didn't really stand out to me was Will Smith, honestly, because he just can't. He just can't capture that 2007 magic, man. Like I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, how is this the guy that made Hitch? How is this the guy that was an I Am Legend? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, how is this the same man? He just can't quite get there. There's a couple scenes. A bit of emotion. Honestly, the most emotional character in the film was the CGI young Will Smith. <laughs> young who Will was Smith. crying half the film. Yeah, um, who, I, who I thought was kind of intriguing for what it's worth. Um, but ultimately, yeah. I think that's where it really doesn't stand out. Yeah, the clone thing is cool. The whole father son thing between Clive Owen and clone Will Smith is just—it seems so weird, and I don't even know why it's there. It makes it makes no sense. You know, he's supposed to be the surrogate father. But it I, it feels like it's just there so Will Smith can cry on on camera, um, and I I just don't think it works particularly well. That whole side plot can go. I I think I'm inclined to agree. Uh, and this is probably where we should probably dip into kind of the production behind this film. Who made this movie? It was directed by Ang Lee, uh, who of course did Life of Pi, Brokeback Mountain, uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Those are the outstanding ones. The writing of this movie is interesting because you get to the end of the movie and you see it's written by David Benioff of Game of Thrones fame. 
and Darren Lemke, who wrote Shazam, which is weird. Like both of those are pretty, pretty outstanding, you know, products for what, for what it's worth. Uh, that was a surprise. The cinematographer on this movie worked on, uh, oh God, what is that movie? I I, I don't know. Some old movie that was cool, but ultimately (laughs) it looks like he's been out of work for a while and it's like, okay, well he's not going anywhere. The, the the composer on this movie has done some stuff and and and, and worked on the dark knight after uh, Hans Zimmer. It's it's interesting the kind of the people that put this movie together cuz they've got some kind of rich history in the industry, definitely new history and in, in, in concerns of the writers, but ultimately it doesn't come out to be better than some of its parts. It just still kind of falls flat despite who's working on it. Yeah, you know? a- absolutely. Absolutely. And I didn't, I didn't know how to really take that. But watching the credits at the end, I was definitely surprised to see some names coming up. Uh, ultimately, you know, I didn't, I didn't hate this movie. Like I, I, I kind of knew what it was going in. It checked all the boxes of what I thought it was going to be. I didn't have a great time, but I wasn't bored for two hours. It, it is a little long. I think it's just under two hours. Probably could have just been ninety minutes. Um, I, I didn't mind it though i, I really didn't uh, should we move on to final recommendations i think we're ready andy would you recommend gemini man i would save it for streaming it's definitely not something you need to go out and see in the theater uh again this is something that that the theatrical release i mean it's it's great for the action but uh the film's really disappointing in a lot of ways so it to me i, I think it is worth seeing if it's a lazy saturday afternoon you're sitting on the couch, throw it on Netflix, see what it was about. Check out the, you know, the CGI, de-aging, the action scenes. Um, so that's how, it, like, I did enjoy parts of it. I enjoyed the the action and, you know, some of the, the spy versus spy stuff is is interesting at times. Most of all, most of the time it is really cliche and the plot definitely doesn't really work. Yeah, I, I guess I'm in the same boat. I, I wish I could give it a bit more of a glowing review because ultimately I didn't mind it that much. I'd say wait for streaming and it's worth it on streaming. I would argue it's better than something like bright, a previous Will Smith film on streaming. Mm-hmm. I got the same feeling watching this that I had watching like Stuber when I watched it and thought like this movie isn't bad, but it's not good enough to get the attention of people at the box office. It's not good enough to get people out of their homes and at, and, and at the theater paying exactly. the price of admission. That's ultimately the problem. Like it's not bad. It's just not good good enough and right. that's that's the problem yeah it definitely uh, um it it bom- it did bomb at the at the box office it you know was made for like about 140 million it only made 20 this weekend so it's definitely going to lose money they definitely would have probably you know been safer to sell it to netflix at cost and you know make whatever they could off of it because it's definitely going to be a huge loss now Right, so I guess, I guess it is what it is. Uh, you can look for more Will Smith and Bad Boys for Life, uh, and also reading up on IMDb here, Bad Boys Four, which will come after that, and then Bright Two. He's on the sequel circuit, guys, so watch <laughs> out. Yeah, he's making some sick movies. Um, also, I, I didn't get to it, but before we kind of wrap the show, the the frame rate thing, we didn't talk about that. So, Ang, do you know anything about this, Andy? A little bit, but keep okay. going. Yeah, so Ang Lee has this thing he kind of discovered before he made Billy Lynn's Long, long Halftime Walk with this high frame rate look that he likes. That if I could liken it to anything, it'd be like Peter Jackson in the Hobbit films when they're like when they did their forty-eight FPS, right? That was the mm-hmm. whole thing. So his film Gemini Man is available in both sixty FPS three D and one hundred and twenty FPS three D in very select locations. I think it might be like IMAX only or something. 
Uh, I haven't seen him in either. Uh, people who have seen it have reported things like headaches because your your eyes aren't used to seeing them. Uh, there's one fantastic review from a man. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's a 45 minute video. A man who went and saw Gemini Gemini Man three times in one day and saw it in every format: 120, 60, <laughs> and then like 30 or 24, which is where we saw it 2D, and he saw it in 3D and whatnot. And he said the 1620 were like watching a sitcom. He's like, it looks like you're watching The Office or something. Like, it looks oh, like it's happening. Gosh. Like, it looks terrible. Like, it totally loses that cinematic view. He said the, the the CGI is all worse for it. It is not any better. I think the best way to see this film is in 24 FPS. I think Ang Lee needs to get off his high horse. And if there's anything worth remembering when it comes to high frame rates in films, it's this. The Hobbit, 48 FPS, you cannot see anywhere now. You can't get it on Blu-ray or 4K because TVs don't output at whatever resolution they were running that at. So they don't even sell it. So if you're going to go see a movie and they're like high frame rate, just keep in mind, you'll never be able to see it that way. <laughs> never again. see it again. So it may not be worth your the extra $4 or whatever you'd have to pay to go see it. That's high frame rates at the movies. And with that, we should wrap our show for the week. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the reviews, if you have something you want to say, if you want to weigh in on Hugh Grant and his hot takes on loud sounds, uh, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, where Andy posted a brilliant link to the Joker review last week. A lot of people clicked through on that, so thanks, gang. If you happen to listen to that and you're still here, thanks for hanging out. We appreciate it. If there's anything you can do for the show, you can just subscribe. Or rate and review. You know, that's an option as well. But subscribing is the big thing. Maybe tell your friends. That would help a lot. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Zombieland Double Tap, the unexpected sequel to Zombieland that came out when I was in high school. 2009. Been, it has been a while. Yeah, it's been a decade. And now we've got the sequel, which I think picks up a year or two after the original film. So we'll see what that's about. We're also going to look at this little known film coming out on Netflix called The Laundromat. And if you haven't heard of it, Good news, we haven't either, but it stars Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman, and Antonio Banderas, and it comes out next week, and those are all big names, so we're going to check it out. It can't be worse than Gemini, man. It could easily be worse than <laughs> it Gemini, could man. But, right, and yeah. all, all I know is that it's, it's about some sort of uh, money laundering, big business uh, scheme, something in that vein. Wolf of Wall Street kind of reminds me. Yeah, I don't mean to undersell next week's episode, um, but I saw, I started watching a trailer for The Laundromat on Facebook, I think yesterday, and then got bored and kept scrolling. <laughs> so we'll see what it's about, though. We're going to watch it and see what's going on. Uh, this month coming up, some things that are notable. Andy wrote this section, so it's worth saying. Uh, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil is going to be coming out. Jojo Rabbit is coming out soon. We can't find a screening of it locally, but I do want to see it. So if we don't watch it for the show, maybe I'll just drop hot takes on Twitter or something. And the Jay and Silent Bob reboot is coming out in November. Oh, God. I wish I lived in a world where I didn't want to see that film, but in a weird, <laughs> like, masochistic way, I kind of do, you know? I just want to see... There's no way. There's no way it's as good as the original, right? There's no. No, it's fine. <clears throat> so, uh, with that being said, thank you so much for lifting, listening to the show from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis, and I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.